0: Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Shackman. It's always so interesting when all the assumptions we make about history turn out to be wrong, or at least slightly ajar. When we think about the Civil War era, we think about it in clear lines, the North versus the South. But in families, in communities, and even in states themselves, many were conflicted. There were personal and economic interests that crossed over on both sides. Nowhere was this more the case than in the city of New York. While seemingly a part of the North, New York's economic interests in cotton, shipping, and even the slave trade made New York what it always had been, a capital of commerce. As such, its interests were often conflicted. This is part of the story that my guest John Stroutsbaugh tells in his new book, City of Sedition. John Straussbaugh has been writing about the culture and history of New York for over a quarter of a century. He wrote the epic history of New York's Greenwich Village, and it is my pleasure to welcome him here to talk about his newest book, City of Sedition, the history of New York City during the Civil War. John strauss thanks so much for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me, Jeff.
0: It's great to have you here. You know, it, it's really easy to think of New York as part of the North and its interests aligned with the North. But as today, New York was really a center of shipping, a center of commerce, and it really looked to its economic interests, it seems, before it looked at anything else.
1: Yeah, well, it, New York was um, uh, was fighting its own civil war at the same time that the country was falling into civil war. Um, by far, the majority of New Yorkers, in some way or another, profited from the huge cotton international cotton trade. Um, And so that made them very sympathetic to the South and very pro-slavery, or at least anti-abolitionist. But at the same time, there was a small and very influential uh, uh, kernel of abolitionists in New York, like uh, Reverend Beecher and uh, Horace Greeley, who made a huge impact in their own way on the other side, on the abolitionist side. So it was a very—New York had a huge but hugely confused influence.
0: Mm -hmm. And when this played out in New York, was it playing out—obviously, you mentioned Horace Greeley. Was it playing out in the press? Was it playing out in the media of the time? Or was it also playing out on the streets?
1: Uh, Both. Um, In the media, New York had, uh, you know, many papers at the time. Um, the ones that were conservative and pro South were as, if you read them now, they're just outrageously racist and, <laughs> and um, white supremacist. But at the same time, you had what was in effect the most liberal paper in the country at the time, the Tribune, which was uh, Greeley's paper. Um, so you had both. And then on the streets, it wasn't just, you know, bankers were involved in the cotton industry, obviously, and shipping. People and, and manufacturers, but also an awful lot of workers in New York. And they were uh, roused by those conservative newspapers to be very anti abolitionists because they feared. That uh, if the four million people who were enslaved in the South were freed, they were all going to come north and take away their jobs. Our newspapers, the conservative newspapers, kept telling them that over and over and over again.
0: It's interesting when you read that how much it parallels some of the immigration arguments that go on today.
1: Some things don't change, and there are demagogues and, and rabble rousers out there right now. You know, in my opinion, one of them happens to come from New York City. <laughs> who
0: were the rabble-rousers and demagogues of that period? We talked a little bit about some of the progressives. Who were who were the demagogues in New York then?
1: Well, one of the great ones was uh, the mayor, uh, on and off mayor, Fernando Wood. Um, when the southern states began to secede after Lincoln's election, he suggested that New York City should secede as well and become a free a free port, free and independent port city. Um, but he was always, he and his brother, who was a newspaper editor, Benjamin, were always rousing the, uh, the white workers, especially the Protestant workers. Um, the Irish workers had their own rabble-rousers. Um, so they were a very big deal. And then James Gordon Bennett, who was probably one of the most conservative newspaper editors he, did, he founded The, the Herald, so you have the two big papers, the Herald and the Tribune. The Tribune was very liberal and pro-abolitionist, and the Herald was very anti-abolitionist and very pro-South. And the two warded out every day.
0: Talk a little bit about the bankers, because they relied heavily on the cotton industry, as the industry did on New York bankers. Talk a little bit about how that played out.
1: Yeah, uh, the the Plantation South and New York City's bankers and shippers and manufacturers um, had a codependent relationship. Um, the spread of cotton of the plantations in the Cotton South was funded by New York bankers. Uh, they're usually through a middleman, but New York had almost all the banks in the country at that point. Um, so you came to New York for your loans, you came to New York for your lines of credit. And so... the uh, the New York bankers were as dependent in their way on cotton as any slave-owning plantation owner.
0: Of course, the other part of the equation was the shipping aspect, which accounted for a huge part of of the activity in the Port of New York at the time.
1: Um, Cotton was an enormous export. Sixty percent of the exports from the United States to the rest of the world was cotton. 40% Um, 40% of what New York shipped out was cotton. So it was huge. And it had it interesting, it worked itself into American life in interesting ways. Um, much of the budget of the federal government in Washington in those years came through the customs house in the port of New York. So a lot of the goods that were coming back in New York and, and having customs charged on them were the result of the cotton going over, and then ships were filled with new goods and came back with it. So everybody was tied to cotton.
0: Talk a little bit about how Lincoln viewed this conflicted attitude in New York.
1: Uh, he, was, he knew very well that New York was, in effect, hostile territory. He knew that before he got elected. Uh, New Yorkers did not elect him. They voted 2-1 against him uh, in 1860 and again in 1864. Um, he got a very cold reception when he came through New York City on his way to the White House um, after he was elected. Um, But he also knew that if he was going to go to war with the South, he needed New York City. Um, It was by far the biggest city in the country, Uh, the manufacturing center, the the business center, the money center. And he needed it and was not at all sure that he could count on.
0: Were there political leaders in New York that saw New York in a unique place In this civil war and even before the war, in the the run-up to the war, and thought maybe being in the position New York was in, that it could do something to avert the war or at least bring it to a faster conclusion once it had started.
1: Yeah, um, both. Um, There were a lot of the same business leaders who were so involved in the South were terrified of a war because um, their businesses would be cut off instantly, and they, in fact, were. Um, And they'd be left holding um, what were, in effect, billions of dollars, millions in their time, but it would be billions in our time, uh, dollars of Southern debt that they thought was never going to get repaid. Um, and they thought that, you know, at least 40% of their shipping was going to disappear, which it did for a while. So they lobbied Congress. They got petitions up. They they begged their Southern partners not to secede and not to go to war. Um, didn't work.
0: Once the war broke out, what was the relationship between the leadership of the Confederacy and people in New York?
1: Uh, there were... New York newspapers who continued to be very uh, pro-South and pro-Confederate during the war. Um, at, at, at there was a point at which Lincoln got sick of that and uh, had several of the papers uh, suspended and a couple of the editors actually w- were arrested um, for a seditious talk. Um, the South looked to New York as an important center of uh, anti-war agitation, um, and at toward the end of the war sent saboteurs to New York and to Chicago with the idea that they were going to burn, start those cities burning and that would uh, incite uh, other people in the North. And there were a lot of people in the North who were against the war. There was a large anti-war movement, which we don't hear about. Um, that would incite them to ri- rise up and put an end to the war. There were New Yorkers who colluded with those Confederate saboteurs to burn their own city down.
0: Talk a little bit about the slave trade, because the, the, it's one aspect of New York that historically has been conveniently forgotten.
1: Yeah, you don't hear much about it, although there have been some very good books about it in, in recent years. Um, New York was the northern hub of the illegal international the transatlantic slave trade right up into the beginning of the war. Um, it was openly practiced. There were slave ships being fitted out in New York Harbor every day, year after year. Um, there was very little that the U.S. Navy, which was tiny, could do to stop them. Um, the courts in New York were very to, um to convict anyone for doing it. So although they weren't bringing many slaves into the United States, because at that point you didn't need to, the United States had enough slaves, a very stable slave population of its own, they were taking them to Cuba, they were taking them to the mines in Brazil, and it was uh, a large and and illegal, completely illegal uh, practice in New York City right up into the war until finally the only one slave ship captain who was ever hanged for it was hanged in New York City.
0: Talk a little bit about attitudes in New York as the war progressed, as the ups and downs and some of the battles between the North and South would take place. And at various points, it was unclear how the war would play out. Talk about how that played out in New York.
1: Oh, absolutely. For the first two years, anyway, the war went very badly for the North and for the Union. Um, when the war started, um, New Yorkers and Brooklynites, because they were still separate cities, um, volunteered in great numbers. Uh, there was, uh, you know, Raj Militaire, as the French said. Uh, they were ready to go to war. They also thought it was gonna be over in about three months, so they signed up for three months, got their uniforms and their muskets, and thought they were gonna march south, kick some butt, end the war, and come home. When, after battles like Bull Run, and then later Antietam, and Fredericksburg, and Chancellorsville, where the carnage was horrific, and uh, the Union armies did not fare well. Uh, The volunteerism went down to a trickle, obviously, which eventually uh, made it necessary for Lincoln to institute a draft, and that's when you have the draft riots in New York City.
0: How did New York do economically in the midst of all of this? How did it impact the economics of New York during the war?
1: Well, yeah, that's very interesting. For all the New Yorkers... uh, feared the war, argued against the war, uh, were terrified that the war was coming, and then didn't do much to support Lincoln during much of the war, they, the business community profited immensely from it. Uh, you know, New Yorkers being New Yorkers, they figured out how to replace the, the cotton trade with wool and beef and, and other uh, commodities, uh, timber, other commodities from the West. They uh, once... The war got started and things settled down. Some the shipping was back on. Railroads uh, uh, went crazy because they needed to bring things by rail from the Midwest. Um, so they did very well. A whole new generation of millionaires, who were called the shoddy aristocracy because they were brand new money. Um, built mansions on Fifth Avenue and wore diamonds on their clothes and did very, very well from the war. And in fact, New York came out of the war positioned um, for the boom times of the Gilded Age and to become eventually the capital of the world. So for all they complained about it, they did very well.
0: What impact did exactly what you're talking about have on the economics of the South in the waning days of the war, because suddenly they lost leverage as far as New York was concerned?
1: Yeah, New Yorkers um, looked, they, at the end of the war, they looked to... uh, to starting up their business with the South again, and it just wasn't happening. The South was devastated Um, financially, physically. A quarter of its white men were killed. Um, It was in ruins. Um, Because we have to remember, most of the war was fought in the South, and toward the end, the Union was fighting it very fiercely. Um, So New Yorkers did look to the South, but decided there was not much there for them, and they continued to look west. Those inroads they had made in the West during the war was where they, they turned their attention. And the winning of the West, we think of it as cowboys and settlers, but an awful lot of that was financed out of New York City.
0: Those in New York that supported the South, those that were concerned about the South, the slave trade, the economic connection to the South, talk a little bit about how they wound up as the war wound down.
1: You know, they didn't uh, do too badly. Some of them would get arrested, uh, but let out after a few months. Um, There were the ones who colluded with the Confederate saboteurs. Nothing happened to them. Um, And once the war, it was one of those wars, like a lot of wars, that the instant it was over, people wanted to forget all about it. Um, There were people who had come, who had left New York and gone to fight for the Confederacy, some generals even. They came back and got their jobs back in the city government. And uh, so there, there wasn't much impact. For, even though they had been, you know, traitorous and treasonous during the war, once the war was over, they were fine. They just sailed on.
0: Did it have any long-term impact in changing the politics of New York? Uh,
1: in a way, but in a in a kind of strange way, it. The during the war, Tammany Hall, which had already been the machine, the Democratic. Um, political machine. And Democratic in those days meant the conservative side. Republicans were the liberals, Democrats were the conservatives. Um, Went into the war already quite strong, but by manipulating what was going on during the war, for instance, how the draft riots were dealt with and how the draft was dealt with, Tammany Hall came out stronger than ever and would dominate New York politics well into the 20th century.
0: And were there any recriminations in New York, after the war, about being so closely allied with the slave trade for so long,
1: no, um, people forgot about it pretty quickly um, the people The war was such a nightmare for everyone or for at least for let 's say for both sides that people really wanted to put it behind them once it was over. Um, the north, uh, even though it didn 't do well reaching out to the South in terms of business um, it, it was very much in the in New York that the the kind of myth of the Old South, the wonderful days of the plantation life. That comes out of New York City publishing houses and New York City minstrel shows as much as anywhere. Um, uh, Verena Davis, uh, Jefferson Davis's wife, moved to New York City and was quite a popular figure in the city uh, in the post-war years.
0: And did leaders in the North see New York as a city of sedition? Did, Did they feel that New York had kind of sold out to the South during the war?
1: Uh, it, it wasn't the, the, the only major urban center that was very pro-South during the war. Chicago was as well. Um, and the whole Midwest, there were a lot of folks who were called Copperheads at the time, who were northerners but were basically pro-South and pro-Confederacy. So New York wasn't the only place. It was the biggest and most important, but it had happened all around the North.
0: And, of course, after the war was over, as you say, it was as if nothing had happened. Everybody just went back to, to the business of business.
1: Pretty much. Um, you know, the Gilded Age starts right after the Civil War, and uh, it's all about making money. And it's the, it's the equivalent of the 1920s and the 20th century, the, the post-Civil War years, the Gilded Age. Uh, New York booms. It has an enormous booming economy, and everybody was quite happy.
0: And has it had, in your view, any lasting impact, any historical impact going forward with respect to the relationship between New York and the South?
1: Um, Yeah, I think. Even though New York had been so pro-Southern, not all New Yorkers, but Mm -hmm. so many many New Yorkers, um, before and during the war, after the war, there was uh, a break, and... It, when New Yorkers went to the South to try to start businesses up again, they were greeted with great hostility. Um, and, uh, and I think that in some ways has never ended. Uh, you know, when I go South, people are like, oh, where are you from? And they, you know, <laughs> they know where I'm from. Just, all they have to do is look at me. And, you know, they're polite, but they're, they know that I'm, a, I'm an outsider there. And I think that's, that's a, you know, a lasting legacy of the Civil War.
0: John Straussbaugh. His book is City of Sedition The History of New York City During the Civil War. John, I thank you so much for spending time with us today.
1: Jeff, yeah, thanks a million.
0: Thank you.